Since 2000, approximately 9 million jobs have been added to the economy each year in Africa, compared to 20 million plus people joining the workforce each year. African markets aren't creating enough jobs for such a fast-growing population. So it'll need to turn to the global economy, particularly digital and remote work. There's an ever-increasing demand for remote work, the opportunity to earn in foreign currency, often for higher-paying employers, and in a global environment where more employers are looking to hire their workforce from abroad, where jobs exist for African talent without the constraints of the domestic markets in question. And the opportunity is related to this huge macro reality, of course. If you've listened to prior episodes this season, you've heard these statistics. They're certainly worth repeating. Africa's population is 1.4 billion people. It's not only huge, but it's the youngest and fastest growing continent. Its population will double by 2050. Its urban population will triple. In the next 80 years, the global population will grow by 3 billion people. 2.7 billion, or 87% of the global population growth, will come from Sub-Saharan Africa. Meanwhile, the median age on the continent is 19.7 years old. In the UK, it's 40. In the US, it's 38. In Germany, it's 46. In Japan, it's 49. Even in China, it's 38. And in India, it's 28. As a result, African countries will be adding more people to the workforce in the next 10 years than the rest of the world combined. So through our African-centric lens, we know that the local economy is not going to create enough jobs or income-generating opportunities for such a rapidly growing African population. But at the same time, for the countries in the global north whose working age population is shrinking, where is the labor going to come from? The solution to both of these problems might be the same, remote work. So in this episode, let's talk to some founders connecting supply and demand across the world. Before we start, we'd like to thank MFS Africa for their sponsorship of the entirety of season four of The Flip. In a globalized world, there's an increasing need for global payments across borders. The MFS Africa hub is not only making connections regionally on the continent, but now with their acquisition of GTP, they're connecting Africans to global merchants with prepaid debit cards. So I spoke to GTP's CEO, Christian Boakira, about that opportunity. So GTP is what you would typically call in our industry jargon a third-party processor, specifically focused on prepaid card processing, Visa and MasterCard certified. We've been in operations for about 15 years or so. Interestingly enough, based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, nonetheless, 80% of its commercial footprint is actually in Africa. And it's been covering about a good 40 countries, interconnecting about 80 financial institutions, There is strong points of convergence between MFS Africa and GTP, and we've seen tremendous growth. So just to put a little bit of perspective, when you look at the global prepaid market, we are seeing that market based on research move to $6.8 trillion, that is, by 2030. Now, specific to the Middle East and Africa, we are seeing a market that is going to evolve to about $100 billion by 2026. So one of the areas that has significantly grown over the past couple of years is strong demand by fintechs of virtual cards. And you're able to do that simply by tokenizing, for example, a card, whereby the user, a mobile phone subscriber, would simply use their mobile wallet to still be able to transact, but now broadening the scope of services that they have access to. You would talk about perhaps Spotify or Netflix, who would have to have multiple entry points and integration points with MNOs and others. Whereas by coming to MFS Africa and thereby interconnecting on the GTP platform, it is a single point of entry that gives them access to all of these use cases. So it's really from any to many. You're listening to The Flip, 
the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. In today's episode, we're going to explore three buckets of remote work. The sexy, high-skilled remote work for product-led technology companies, the services-based IT work and business process outsourcing, and lastly, the increase of non-technical work that's delivered or fulfilled through digital means. When we think of the first category, high-skilled remote work for product-led technology companies, the poster child in the African context is Andela. So I sat down with Andela's co-founder and CEO, Jeremy Johnson. We started in 2014 with the core premise around that brilliance is evenly distributed, opportunity isn't. We had this common passion for how do you both connect uh, people through work, but also bring more people into the world of technology and make it easier to build careers regardless of where someone was from or who their parents were, as well as make it easier for companies thinking about how do you get access to a broader pool of talent to do that without the complexity of international hiring. Andela started with a coding bootcamp in Lagos back in 2014 and ended up with 750 applicants. And we looked around and thought like, what on earth is going on here? Why are people applying and in these numbers? So we did it again just to see if it was a fluke. And this time we got 2,400 applicants. And it turned out that in the aptitude test that we were using at that point, 42 were in the top 2% aptitude and problem solving of all humans on the planet and applying for a job to a company that had no website and like online presence at all in a relatively low trust society. We realized pretty quickly that there was something, there was something really powerful going on here. So the supply side was robust. To hire and train tech talent, Andela built physical campuses in cities across the continent, developed its Andela learning community, and began to scale its offering to its customers. And in doing so, they became a big employer of junior engineers growing their bench of talent, waiting to be connected to opportunities with global employers. And their pitch to global employers was, there are benefits to hiring more of your workforce overseas. The reasons that they do it and the reasons to do it is because you can increase quality by increasing the size of your available talent pool. If you're looking at hiring someone for a specific role and your talent pool is your block, you're highly unlikely to end up with a good result. But if it's your city, it gets a bit better. If it's your country, a bit better still. If it's the world, you have a dramatically higher chance if you have the means to distribute your message and actually figure out how to navigate that pool of talent. Your probability of success goes up dramatically. Like there's someone who is going to be an amazing candidate for you. And so there's always been a mathematical advantage in increasing the size of your talent pool. The question is, what are the costs that come with that? And in 2014, when Andela was starting, despite robust BPO industries and despite a general trend towards remote work and workplace flexibility, the costs were always still pretty high. But COVID, of course, then hugely accelerated these trends. What's happened over the past couple of years is that the world's gotten really comfortable with remote really quickly. So that shift has realigned people's thinking around what are the actual costs of international and of globalizing their workforce. Because if everyone's working remotely already, which was the biggest impediment, single biggest before, all of a sudden, the downside becomes much more manageable because the thing that you're most worried about is kind of happening regardless. And as a result of that, you just have a very different point of view from companies around what the risks are for doing remote because we're already doing it. But this raises a question about the role Andela plays in the equation today, as more global employers become comfortable with remote hiring. 
One thing I think I missed, or at least underestimated at the beginning of this journey, was just how complicated it is to hire internationally and how complicated it is to get jobs internationally. People look at it as like, oh, if someone has the skills, they're automatically going to get the best job possible in the world for them. And it's just not even remotely true. You could be an extraordinarily talented human who has the exact right skill set. And if you don't have exposure to the right people, experience in the right environments, if you don't have part of what the traditional tech world would look at as the obvious markers of quality to de-risk, then you combine that with international and people are really reluctant to hire. While Andela may be democratizing access to opportunity, it still isn't evenly distributed. So once you realize that, you realize that that notion of ready-made talent that like people can just go out and hire doesn't actually exist. There are lots of things that make it complicated. How do you figure out payroll? How do you figure out global compliance? How do you figure out the assessment process in a world where you've never heard of the university someone attended or the previous three jobs they worked at? There are lots of little components of the hiring process that in totality, make international hiring much more complicated. This is where Andela, as a talent network, serves as a trusted filter and resource for those looking to connect to talent across the world. And so what talent needs is an opportunity. It's really simple. And by doing really meaningful assessments, by creating a filtering mechanism to find that extraordinary talent and help show just how capable he or she is, we're able to help people meaningfully accelerate their careers and just get better jobs than they otherwise would be able to. And for talent going through Andela, the outcomes are self-evident. The average engineer that gets a job through Andela, their first job increases their take-home pay 87%. It nearly doubles their salary. So what does talent need? I think people like that. It's that, and it's a harder, more interesting challenge. Like it's the opportunity to solve bigger problems with companies that are more on the cutting edge while maintaining the flexibility of their remote working world without having to leave their home country. That's what talent wants. That's what we're enabling. Now let's take a step back to focus a bit more on the supply side, because how Andela works with talent and the types of talent Andela works with has evolved a bit since their start in 2014. As we spoke about earlier, Andela started with a coding bootcamp, targeting junior developers, and they built physical campuses to train developers through the Andela learning community. But then in 2019, and even after a $100 million Series D, the company announced it was laying off hundreds of junior engineers. It was ultimately a reflection of the wants and needs of the demand side. Yeah, a lot of it was demand. As we moved up market, it became more and more clear that companies needed and expected a broader diversity of talent, and in particular from an experience level. It just became really clear that we also needed to diversify that talent base because we were seeing more and more demand for more experienced talent. As Indela grew, it enabled them to reach for and service bigger customers, which impacted the type of talent they needed. Every B2B company, when they're small, it's the vast majority, sell to other small companies. It's generally pretty tough for like a tiny startup to do business with a Fortune 100 company. But as you get bigger, it becomes a more natural progression. Enterprise is the fastest growing segment of the business at this point. And so what these Fortune 100 companies are looking for is a talent partner. In general, one person, one team, one group wants to have a talent partner. They want to have someone who they can just count on. While Andela still trains tens of thousands of software developers, due to the needs of the demand side, the company has evolved to be more of a talent network. We train more total people right now through the Andela learning community. At any given point, we're training 15 to 20,000 people to be software developers. That's still a pretty meaningful percentage of overall placements that we make, but the majority come through Andela as talent network. So why do employers tap into Andela's talent network? 
It has to do with the specialist nature of the roles in question and the types of companies Andela is working with. Our customers are generally building great digital products. That's what they're focused on. And so when it comes to building great digital products, we want to be able to support that journey with the best, most effective talent in the world. See, Andela is hiring for a specific type of organization, companies that are building great digital products, product companies. And as we heard earlier from Jeremy, product companies are looking for a specific caliber of talent from an experience level in particular. So that raises another question. What does this mean for the future of work in Africa if experience level is such an important requirement? And how do we get experience for such a huge population that is becoming working age? This is where another entrepreneur is focused on a similar type of talent, software engineers, but with a different target customer. The work I've done over the last 20 years is really trying to unlock the potential of Africa by solving its biggest problems. And the way that I've chosen to do this is through selecting exceptional people, developing that talent, and then connecting them to opportunities. That's Fred Swanaker, the CEO of the African Leadership Group, whose network of companies includes the African Leadership Academy, the African Leadership University, ALX, and The Room. Fred and I sat down to discuss his experience building an African talent network. When I began this journey of developing tech talent, we thought that the people who would take our talent would be product companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and you know Amazon. But I started looking at the issue a bit more nuancedly and looking at ecosystems that have developed in Israel and Eastern Europe and Latin America. And what I found is that the people who are actually going to employ this talent at scale are not the Googles and the Facebooks and the Microsofts, the so-called product companies. Instead, the employees that hire the most developers at scale are actually the service companies. What I came to learn is that there are basically two types of employers of tech talent. They're product companies, which are the ones that we all know about. Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and all the tech startups that we hear about. And then there are service companies. And the service companies are companies that customize products for companies and develop custom software. Notwithstanding the business model, the difference is important from a jobs perspective. The product route creates very few jobs. Service companies employ 100 to 300 times more people. And so Salesforce has 70,000 employees, but the ecosystem of people who do Salesforce implementation is going to have 9.3 million people by 2026. Amazon Web Services has 100,000 employees. They predict that their ecosystem of people who implement AWS will be 30 million by 2030. And so for Fred, the focus is on service companies because of the scale of the jobs they create. And there are lessons here from other developing markets. So India went the services route because they also had a population problem similar to Africa. And today they have 6 million software engineers that work directly in the sector they create 18 million jobs indirectly. And they don't have a lot of billionaires, but they've got lots of middle-class people that work in the tech sector. So when I look at the Africa context, if we're going to create work for these young people, we need to become service-oriented, not product-oriented. A service orientation can act as the foundation on top of which the ecosystem matures, and its talent develops requisite experience. The services companies are also the ones that tend to hire entry-level talent. Because the product companies want people with five years experience, 10 years experience, with PhDs, deep, deep knowledge. So there's a chicken and egg problem. So people train a lot of young people and then they go to product companies and they're like, no, I need someone with 10 years experience. And they're like, how am I going to get experience? Perhaps service companies are the answer to the experience question. What the service companies do is they take on a project from a company, like we'll configure your Salesforce. We'll, they're not giving you the talent, they give you the solution. And then that's cloud migration project or Salesforce configuration or might need only five senior people in it, but they'll staff it with 25 people. 
And on that are lots of juniors who are learning on the job, essentially they're apprentices. That's how they go from being a junior developer to a mid-level developer to senior developer. And the client doesn't see their mistakes. The client doesn't see all the learning on the job. They just see the end result. And so that apprenticeship model is the vehicle that we need. Our ambition is to employ several hundred thousand, maybe even a million engineers. And then you go to companies and you don't offer them talent, you offer them a solution. And then under that solution, you hide all the people that you're training. And then they get work experience and that's how we create jobs in Africa. And when it comes to demand, while the product companies get a lot of hype, and while they create outsized impact on the sectors they touch, particularly relative to their number of employees, in the African context, in an environment of rapid digitization, it's the service companies that are going to play an increasingly important role in moving sectors forward from a technology adoption and digital transformation perspective. The market for services is way bigger than the market for tech products because the number of people who can hire engineer and actually know what to do with it are very few because to effectively use an entry-level engineer or even an experienced person, you need a whole management system. To deliver a technology project, you need all these specialized skills. Post-pandemic, every company now has to become digitized, but they have no clue how to do tech. And that's where then there's much, much more opportunity for work. And this demand and opportunity comes not only from companies across Africa, but outside of it as well. If Africa is going to really grow its economy, one is we have to go into services and not only products because purchasing power is very low. Don't sell in Africa, sell globally. And that's how we're going to get wealthy. When we come back, we'll move from high-skilled jobs like software engineering to the opportunity in non-tech, but still digitally delivered jobs across the continent. Earlier in the show, we heard from Christian Bwakira, the CEO of GTP, MFS Africa's latest acquisition. GTP and MFS Africa are seeing a meaningful increase in demand for virtual card services across their network and from customers like fintechs. But while fintechs may be the obvious use case for virtual cards, there are indeed many more. For example, we've signed a major strategic partnership with GMUMOR, which is a regional switch, central bank mandated in Francophone Africa, uh, headquartered in Senegal. And they have a closed loop or interoperable solution within the region, but that does not allow their consumer base, which covers over 100 banks, to pay for uh, goods, let's say, online or simply do transfers from one institution to another. In today's world, when you do a transfer from one bank to another in the Francophone area, it could take as much as one to five days. So with this strategic partnership, for example, we are enabling card to card transfer. That's one use case. A second one is card to bank account transfer and bank account to card transfer. But we also understand and appreciate the predominance of cash. And therefore, what we've enabled as well is card to ATM as well. And that goes back on the rails of GTP specifically. And that enables them to have an access to a wider ecosystem because our products are branded Visa and MasterCard specifically. The Andela and African Leadership Group stories of impact and job creation have been meaningful stories for African markets, fulfilling demand for high-skilled technical talent with Africans across the continent, who may not have otherwise had an opportunity to work in these types of roles. But whereas there is an ever-increasing demand for software developers, it's still a pretty hard skill set to develop, and it typically takes a large amount of training and a long time for the developer to be ready for the global organization in question. But there are other job roles that are less technical, for which it is easier and quicker to train talent but that can nonetheless take advantage of the trends in remote work and internationalizing workforces. Jobs that aren't technical, but still use technology to fulfill the work. There's been a lot of attention paid to roles like software engineering. But in some ways, 
Starting with software engineering is probably the hardest place we might start. To become a good software engineer, you have to school and work for probably a year plus before you really get to be truly valuable. That's Paul Breloff, the co-founder and CEO of Shortlist. Shortlist is part executive search firm and part talent technology platform focused on getting young Africans into great jobs across the continent. Through his own experience building Shortlist, Paul is particularly intrigued and excited by the remote work and training opportunities in non-technical roles. What I think we're particularly interested in seeing and helping facilitate is creation of more talent pools around the variety of jobs in the modern economy where you don't need to be physically situated. And that can include things like customer service and data augmentation. And in Shortlist's case, sectors like recruiting. We're even seeing it within recruiting, where we run an executive search business, where we're constantly hiring and training young professionals to be sophisticated global recruiters. And there's a worldwide shortage for those right now. We're seeing that in the U.S., there's a greater demand for recruiters than there are software engineers, according to LinkedIn. And the key thing about a job like a recruiter is that it's comparably easy to train for. And those are jobs that they're not techie exactly, but they can be done from anywhere as long as you've got a computer, LinkedIn, and you know how to email. So here's the opportunity. What we'd like to see is systematic review of the jobs and the job categories that exist in markets with big economies, but perhaps shrinking or flat workforces like the US and the UK, and go through those job types one by one and figure out what would it take to prepare a young African for this job and get them bridged and connected to the employment so that they can actually do this work. And what does that work look like? One is a skilling issue. The other is a bridging issue. On the skilling side? There's no question that we need to build up the machinery to identify raw potential. And then, of course, we need to train people in the basic skills and competencies so that they can do these jobs. And I think that skilling often gets reduced to some form of classroom training, if only it was that easy. I think part of what we're realizing to become a truly great recruiter, you need to actually be in situation working with real clients on real topics and often in a quasi-apprenticeship model where you're getting coached along by someone who's been there, done that. Then on the bridging issue? The bigger and more complicated issue might be the bridging issue of how do we get those people in front of the right employers. Because even though increasingly employers are looking global for their talent needs, there's still going to be reluctance and friction if companies try to go one by one. So I think what we'll be continuing to see are organizations that act as this quality control and intermediation layer connecting global employers to global talent pools. Enter the talent networks again. Over the next decade, we're going to see a massive shift in how global hiring happens. That's Jeremy Johnson, who we heard from earlier in the episode. That shift is going to move a giant chunk of overall hiring through talent networks because they will be better equipped to look at thousands of different candidates and find the right person for a given role and to understand the ecosystem that person is coming from and how to help that person be successful in your company. What that may lead to is more so-called Andela for X companies those that are employing this model of higher trained deploy to more sectors than just software development. And that applies to anything where you can even start to quantify the output of a role. So the more obviously you can quantify something, the more obvious the Adela for X story becomes. 
I often think we should see tens if not hundreds of Vandela for Exile companies attempting to tackle this opportunity, especially in the macro context. Fast-growing working-age population in Africa, coupled with an increasing comfortability with remote work. And I think Jeremy agrees. The international component of it makes it really obvious. But overall, we're going to see an Andela for everything pop up. It's essentially global talent marketplaces that do a better job of connecting talent that is looking for opportunities with opportunities that will enable them to have higher paying, more effective, and more interesting roles. And vice versa, will make it easier for companies to navigate globalizing their teams. And while there are horizontal talent marketplaces where you can hire for any type of role from anywhere in the world, in this context, a vertical sector-specific platform is an important component of the equation. The verticalization is important because what the companies are counting on is that you are better at figuring out who's going to be successful in their environment than they are. And it turns out that's not the hardest thing in the world if you're able to look across lots of companies and lots of talent and keep track of who's successful and why, and then keep iterating. And one vertical platform creating opportunities for non-technical talent with a focus on customer success is the Nigerian-based startup Carrot. My name is Tolu Agumbiadi, and I'm the founder of Carrot. We vet, hire, and manage non-tech talent for high-growth companies. Carrot's origin story starts with Tolu seeing a disconnect between supply and demand in the labor marketplace. The problem statement in my head was, how do you bridge the gap between what schools teach and what the world needs? Because I thought there was a gap there. And of course, you've heard it before. Everybody says it's in some form that there are no jobs, but then employers are saying that they're not employable people out there. And I was just like, there is this disconnect. And this disconnect both inspired Tolu to explore this opportunity and to name the business Carrot. I used to be a writer and a copy editor. And in writing, the carrot is that symbol you use to show that there is a gap in something and then you suggest what should fill the gap. So in our minds, we're filling the unemployment gap in the world. And it's also the symbol for exponential. So it's like we're filling that gap exponentially. So while this idea for carrot percolated in Tolu's mind as she worked at CC Hub, followed by MEST, and then in roles with ALU and ALX, the initial version of Carrot and what we see today was based on employer demand. So when I think about the three main offerings that we have, there's the upscaling, there's one that's the connecting to talent, and then there's one that's the managing the talent for you. And I thought based off of like just my experience and the things I've done before, I'm very geared towards things that are more product-led, that are scalable with tech. So the connecting to talent was the one that I thought would be the primary thing. You have this platform, you have people sign up, you do some magic, they match together in the end. That outsourcing model wasn't supposed to be the primary thing for us. The reason why outsourcing is the main thing is it was the one that was really available immediately. It was the one that had the most demand and the immediate willingness to pay from customers. And where there is existing demand, this role in question, customer success, has a shorter time to value when it comes to training and work readiness. What I was thinking of was what's something that Within four to six weeks of some kind of upskilling training, the average person coming out of even high school would still be able to do a good job at this. And I was also very particular about non-tech. And also I needed it to be something that didn't take too long for people to be good at, but it was something that you get transferable skills for other roles as well. And lastly, customer success is a role that's critically important for businesses, but non-core, which means that certain types of employers aren't necessarily looking to hire for that role in-house. Take one of Carrot's customers, a fintech, for example, with a growing customer base. What's a role that's in demand that a lot of companies need, but would rarely ever build such a large team in-house for? The main problem they had was they're a fintech company, 
and they have an in-house customer support team, but they get insane amounts of demand from customers. The department that has the most people in your company is indicative of where your resources go and like the direction your company wants to be in. And for them, they're a product company first. So product and engineering is where they want the bulk of their team to be out of, but they also need a lot of customer support help. So in their own case, they're like, we need this support. We don't want to have it directly. So how about we outsource this to a partner? Now, there are a lot of related questions here around why organizations may choose to hire African talent in a competitive global marketplace. Indeed, it's a question that we're going to explore next episode in a case study on global business services in South Africa. And it's a question that lay at the heart of my retrospective conversation with the Flips B-Mic Shio Fuluio. Take a listen. I think the more interesting question in the context of exports, and we've talked about this a lot, how to position African markets and the work that is involved in enabling African workers to capture that opportunity, especially because it is globally competitive and there is better perception mm. around digital workers in the Philippines mm. or whatever. For sure, there's a brand issue or a brand opportunity, I should say. I don't think it's an issue. I think there's a brand opportunity. One of the questions I had actually, you know, was just kind of like, what does that look like on a more regional or national country wide? Yeah. That's this idea about Africa, right? No, I mean, you know, you Africa is a mon- monolith. Yeah. I don't really actually mind that as a concept. Like it's kind of can be very useful. I think it's allowing us actually in things like this podcast, it's allowing us to penetrate to some extent, right? If just kind of the idea that if everybody's going together, you can penetrate a little bit of the global mm. conversation. But sometimes it just is not that useful. But <laughs> this, And then when you get into the weeds in actually hiring. Like this is one of them, right? Like yeah. South Africa as a place has very um, precise things that make it a very good thing for X or Y. Ghana has precise things that make it very good for... And also just the infrastructure of paying people and local employment, blah, blah, blah. Exactly, right. So I think it's important to think about that, the powers that should be also thinking about, okay, how do you think about what regions and what countries serve what purpose? So it's like thinking about what are the makeups of the countries and then what particular things might they be good at. You might find that, you know, Nigerians are too um, aggressive to be doing recruiting calls for poor. You know what I mean? So like, I think there is an opportunity, obviously to brand. There's like a global branding exercise that needs to happen. So Um, so we need like an advertising agency. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Africa welcomes work. But then it's like, if you're going for this kind of work, here's the kind of places you should be looking to find and if this kind of yeah. i guess that's the thing is there are established brands in some way and i don't know i mean to some extent i think candela probably has helped in particular with that hundred percent for right? sure in a big way so there's this idea about like the role of these talent aggregators and these sort of models and being vertically specific and like them actually playing like a really important role of connecting supply and demand and being that advocate for talent kind of like the advertiser that yeah, we need. for sure. Yeah. There's then taking it a, a step further, all of these other opportunities to mm. take advantage of digitally delivered work that mm. is not engineering. And what's the competitive advantage against like an in India? Or rather, let me ask a question. That is the question. And you may say there is none. Just you may cheap. say, like yeah, I mean, probably cheaper than India at this point, right? Mm. But the cost versus quality. quality thing, right? I mean, cheaper than the Philippines. Maybe not. I think that that's actually like a real question and a real challenge is why would you outsource your IT work or your customer service or whatever to African countries versus the alternative? People talked about English speaking population, time zones, that kind of stuff. 
but then there's also the, the infrastructural challenges and skills challenges and all of that stuff mm. that makes it really hard to make the decision mm. to outsource your team to Nigeria mm. versus the Philippines. Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah. You know, what's the the advertising campaign? Africa ready for work. Yeah. Well, that's not good. I mean, because if we're going to do this globally competitive game of exporting services, these markets are really competing against some other places where there's better infrastructure and when there's They've been doing it a long higher term. quality. And that's the thing that makes me nervous. It's like we talked about this in the context of traditional development playbook, like export-oriented services is mm. really important. But it's not like in agriculture where you have crops that grow really well where mm. you are and you actually have a competitive or mm. comparative advantage because of what your about geography. Like TikTok? Do we have more TikTokers? Obviously, the youth population story. What does that mean in terms of what capabilities people will have? Mm. Obviously, there's something about capacity, which I think is a maths question. But then there's also about what capabilities does a 15-year-old have that a 30-year-old doesn't. This question about Africa's comparative advantages in this world of export-oriented services is one that we're going to explore next episode in a case study on global business services in South Africa. But until then, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be very grateful if you considered sharing with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. For more from The Flip, you can follow us on social media at The Flip Africa or subscribe to our newsletter on our website, theflip.africa. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next time.